Happening now, Gaza bombarded from the air as Israel's war against Hamas takes an increasingly devastating toll on the ground. The U.S. Secretary of State offering a new condemnation of the rising number of deaths amid new reports of multiple hospitals hit. And breaking news, FBI agents have seized cell phones and an iPad from New York City Mayor Eric Adams. We're getting new details on the fundraising investigation as Adams declares he has nothing to hide. Also tonight, Donald Trump's bid to delay his criminal classified documents trial has been rejected by the judge, at least for now. We'll have the latest on that schedule that would put Trump on trial just months before the 2024 election. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. Wolf Blitzer is off today. I'm Jim Acosta, and you're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. And we begin tonight with Israel's war against Hamas. People in northern Gaza experiencing heavy attacks within the last several hours. Let's go right to CNN's Oren Lieberman reporting from Tel Aviv. Oren, how intense is the fighting tonight? Jim, those pictures right there practically speak for themselves. Our cameras, our teams have seen heavy bombardment in northern Gaza throughout the previous few hours, throughout the evening here. That, as the IDF spokesperson says, Israeli forces are operating deep in Gaza City. Several days ago, the IDF said it had encircled Gaza City and northern Gaza and now was working its way in. Part of the target, part of the fighting here on the part of the Israeli military is to go after Hamas's tunnel infrastructure. And the IDF says that's where they're focusing a lot of their effort, though acknowledging it is deep and difficult fighting because underground Hamas has the advantage. So Israel is trying to do what it can, attacking with grenades and trying to destroy some of that tunnel infrastructure. Again, that's on top of the bombardment we have seen from outside of Gaza. Meanwhile, there have been strikes near hospitals and the same sort of argument or conflicting account of a strike or, or damage we have seen to Al-Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza. That's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, hospitals in the Gaza Strip. The World Health Organization blamed Israel, saying the hospital was coming under bombardment. Meanwhile, Israel denied any involvement in damage to the hospital, saying they have not carried out a strike there and saying, according to their information, it was a failed rocket launch that had damaged the hospital. Very reminiscent of the debate, the argument, and the conflicting accounts we saw some three and a half weeks ago over another hospital, the Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza. Meanwhile, humanitarian quarters opened up for another day for six hours earlier, during which thousands, if not tens of thousands, Gazans fled from northern Gaza to southern Gaza as Israel allowed for that humanitarian corridor along Salah Hadin Street, one of the main north-south arteries in the Gaza Strip. That, uh, the IDF says that they will not strike uh, at the humanitarian corridor even as the war continues around it there. The IDF says tens of thousands of people have fled each day over the past several days. Israel urging the residents there to move south as the operation deepens and continues. We are also hearing increasing criticism and concern on the part of the U.S. from the rising number of civilians killed in Gaza since October 7th. According to the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health in Gaza, more than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed uh, on the ground there since October 7th. A number, they say, includes 4,500 children uh, and 3,000 women. Jim. All right, Oren Lieberman, live for us in Tel Aviv. Thank you very much, Oren. We appreciate it. As new scenes of suffering emerge from Gaza, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is offering one of his most direct condemnations yet of the rising death toll there. Seeing a national security reporter, Natasha Bertrand, has more on all of that. Natasha, is there a shift in tone? It sounds like it, uh, underway from the administration. 
Absolutely, Jim. I think we've heard from the administration, including from President Biden over recent days, uh, that they want to see uh, the humanitarian situation eased in Gaza. They believe that there needs to be a humanitarian pause for a number of days in order to allow civilians to get out of the Gaza Strip. Now, uh, as of right now, Israel has not agreed to a three-day or a longer pause. The administration right now is, is, uh, uh, you know, they are talking to the Israelis about these uh, six hour long pauses that we have seen happening uh, over the last couple days. But look, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, he really underscored uh, just how the U.S. is feeling about all of these civilian casualties. Uh, in statements earlier today, he said that far too many Palestinians are being killed. Here's what he said. Uh, good afternoon. Far too many Palestinians have been killed. Far too many have suffered uh, these past weeks. And we want to do everything possible to prevent harm to them and to maximize the assistance that gets to them. Now, this is sparking a lot of outrage in the Arab world, and U.S. officials are actually warning the White House, the CIA, the FBI about the outrage uh, across the Arab community uh, to these images that we are seeing out of Gaza of all of the, the Palestinians being killed and wounded there. And in a cable that was obtained by my colleague Priscilla Alvarez, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Oman uh, told the White House that they are experiencing outrage uh, like they've never seen, really, and that they, quote, are losing Arab publics for a generation over the U.S.'s support for Israel, and that the support for this military operation is being seen in the Arab world as, quote, material and moral culpability in what they consider to be possible war crimes. So obviously all of this is contributing to the administration's wariness of Israel's military operation in Gaza right now, particularly how it's being carried out uh, with regard to uh, civilians and how the Hamas commanders that Israel says it's targeting are obviously in areas that are densely, densely populated inside Gaza. And so this is something that the administration is going to be uh, really urging the Israelis to take another look at in terms of their military operation in the days ahead, Jim. All right, Natasha Bertrand, uh, thank you very much for that very important report. Now a closer look at Gaza hospitals in crisis as Israeli troops close in. We want to warn you, this report from CNN's Jamana Karacha has a graphic video that some uh, viewers out there may find disturbing. Night 34 of this war brought hell to Gaza's hospitals. So close for these medics outside Al Auda Hospital, they recited their final prayers. The hospital says several were injured in these strikes and two ambulances were completely damaged. It was one of several hospitals struck in what was a night of horror for those sheltering at medical facilities in northern Gaza. And on Friday, more heartache came with these devastating scenes at a Shifa hospital complex. The haunting screams of those who survived this blast, dazed, confused, searching for loved ones amongst the dead and injured. Images that infuriated humanitarians like Norwegian Dr. Mads Gilbert, who volunteered at a Shifa in the past. President Biden, Mr. Blinken, Mr. Blinken. Can you hear me? Prime ministers and presidents of the European countries, can you hear me? Can you hear the screams from Shifa Hospital, from Al Aoudas Hospital? Can you hear the screams from innocent people 
refugees sheltering, trying to find a safe place, being bombed by the Israeli attack forces, hospitals that are the temples of humanity and protection. But this is a war with no red lines, and hospitals are no sanctuary for the tens of thousands crammed into these hospitals, desperate to be protected from a war like no other Gaza has ever seen. For weeks, the Israeli military has been calling on civilians to move south, to get out of harm's way, they say. But so many have been reluctant to heed these calls. Airstrikes and death have followed Gazans to the south. Nowhere is safe in this besieged territory. But as the Israeli military opened up a humanitarian corridor amid intense fighting in the north, tens of thousands had no choice but to run. In scenes that evoke dark memories for Palestinians of an exodus from decades past, one from which there has been no return. But not everyone can leave. The fighting has trapped some of the most vulnerable at two pediatric hospitals where hundreds are sheltering and doctors are calling on the ICRC to evacuate them. Israeli troops are right outside Anasad and Rantisi hospitals. The hospital is surrounded by Israeli tanks from all directions, this young woman says. We are asked to evacuate now. She and others with this cry for international protection and a safe passage out. Back inside a Shifa, there's no stopping, no pauses for those on a mission to save lives. The father anxiously looks to doctors for good news, only to be told his little boy is gone. Never have Gazans felt so abandoned, alone in this land of death and despair. And our thanks to Jamana Karacha for that report. Uh, let's bring in two experts on the region, former State Department Middle East negotiator Aaron David Miller and Middle East journalist Rula Jabril. Uh, Aaron, obviously, we just need to say at the top of this, that was a very disturbing report. Um, and, and what do you make of the fine line that the U.S. is walking right now and supporting Israel while grappling with this brutal assault on Palestinian civilians that we just saw in that uh, just eye-opening report from Jamana Karacha a few moments ago. And are Secretary Blinken's comments a sign of a shift, do you think? It, it's heartbreaking, Jim. And, and I have to say, uh, in the wake of the slaughter on uh, October 7th, I, I, I understand the depth of um, Israeli anger. Uh, with respect to dealing with Hamas. Uh, at the same time, I think our hearts and minds have to be open to the suffering of thousands of innocent Palestinians. You have a humanitarian catastrophe and far too many uh, Palestinian deaths. I think you're right. The administration is navigating a very fine line. The Secretary's comments today was not, a, was not an observation. It was an implicit warning. When you say far too many Palestinians are being killed, it's almost a direct um, sort of warning to the Israelis to change course. The real question, it seems to me, and the administration has offered suggestions, change the ordinance. Don't drop 1,000, 2,000 pound bombs on Jabali refugee camp. Go to something smaller. Use targeted um, intel. Um, the real question, I don't think the administration has a compelling alternative, Jim as to how the Israelis eradicate Hamas as a military organization. They won't destroy it as an idea. How they eradicate uh, Hamas as a military organization while uh, working in densely populated areas where uh, Hamas assets are co-located. 
with civilian populations. How, how do you do that? And, and I think that that's the real dilemma. And I, I suspect the administration will continue to walk that fine line. I'm not sure there'll be a, a dot, dot, dot or else. Right. And Rula, do you see any way for the U.S. to cool down the fury in the Arab world that we are picking up on here at CNN? Uh, when the president has been clear he is against a ceasefire, are these brief pauses going to go far enough uh, amid all of this uh, Palestinian suffering that we just witnessed in that report a few moments ago? No, the Arab world, I mean, not only the Arab world, just to be clear, the United States lost the global south in perpetuity. G7 leaders and diplomats been telling us that, you know, after 22 months with President Biden and Blinken went to the world and said bombing hospital in Ukraine, bombing schools, uh, targeting civilians is a war crime. Now they're turning around and saying, yeah, we condemn it, but we'll continue basically to provide Israel with weapons and with bombs. They're unwilling to condition military aid to implementing or even complying with international law. They said there's no red line and they never even stopped when the Rantisi hospital was bombed, when the Ahli hospital was bombed, when now we're looking at a catastrophe where people have infections, gyms, there are 20,000 injured all over Gaza. People are being amputated, children without anesthesia. So you can say, yeah, we'll give you four hours to, st to stitch a couple of kids, but then we'll go back to carpet bomb you. And the worst element of all of it, that they're looking at the reality, not only in Gaza, they're looking at what Bibi Netanyahu is doing and saying regarding the West Bank. He's saying he will occupy Palestinians everywhere in perpetuity, forever. He is annexing more land in the West Bank. He's unleashing, you know, uh, the, the, the settlers who are being violent. They killed 150 people in areas where there's no Hamas in Hebron, in the West Bank. They look at both, you know, the elements of the conflict, both in the West Bank and in Gaza, and they see the administration that continuing the same policy that Donald Trump put in place, which is Abrahamic Accord, do some deals with Arab leaders. And they're horrified the fact that President Biden, who protected America's democracy from an autocrat like Donald Trump, he aiding and abetting Donald Trump of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu. All right, Aaron David Miller, Arula Jabril, thank you uh, both for those insights. We really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, coming, Jim, thanks thank for having me. Thank you. Coming up, uh, the breaking news on New York City Mayor Eric Adams, FBI agents seizing his electronic devices as a fundraising probe intensifies. And Donald Trump fails to delay a May trial date in the classified documents case. We'll look at the judge's decision and how it could impact Trump's presidential campaign. Breaking news, New York Mayor Eric Adams claims he has nothing to hide tonight after the FBI seized his cell phones and iPad. It marks a dramatic escalation of a federal probe into the mayor's fundraising campaign, or campaign fundraising, I should say. Let's bring in CNN's Polo Sandoval from New York. Polo, uh, tell us more about how the mayor is connected to this investigation. It seems like a pretty dramatic step. It is an extraordinary yeah. development, Jim, absolutely. That's uh, just coming to light now, though my colleagues Gloria Pasmito and Karis Canal reporting that he was initially approached by FBI agents on Monday evening, which is when this seizure happened. FBI agents approaching the mayor, asking that he give them his phones and his iPad. And according to a spokesperson, he immediately did. Now, it's important to remind viewers that this is just happening days after his chief fundraiser was raided, at least 
Jackson's her home was raided by federal authorities in Brooklyn. The main focus of this investigation right now seeking to determine if the mayor's 2021 campaign uh, potentially conspired with a local construction company to receive foreign funds uh, to put those in the campaign coffers, which would certainly be illegal, essentially uh, straw contributors. Now, we should also mention that the mayor, since the news of that investigation came to light, maintains that he holds his campaign to its highest, highest standard. And in a statement that his campaign spokesperson released earlier tonight or this evening, basically echoes that uh, in that statement, the mayor writing, quote, as a former member of law enforcement, I expect all members of my staff to follow the law and fully cooperate operate with any sort of investigation, and I will continue to do exactly that. Adams's campaign attorney and spokesperson Boyd Johnson also saying that he was approached by FBI agents again on Monday night and that he immediately cooperated uh, with investigators and Johnson insisting that uh, the mayor has not been accused of any wrongdoing and that he will continue to cooperate with this investigation, Jim. But really just to summarize the significance and the importance of this, you're looking at the mayor of America's largest city approached by FBI agents and now asked to provide them with uh, devices that could potentially be crucial in this massive ca campaign finance investigation. Absolutely. Ari Polo Sandoval, thank you very much. Let's get more on this important story with legal expert Shan Wu and Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Uh, Karen, let me start with you first. What sort of information would prosecutors need to have to take this kind of drastic step of getting a search warrant to seize the mayor's phone? I mean, that is no small thing. No, this is a very big deal. And, and prosecutors and the FBI, they could have just asked for the phones and the iPad, or they could have gotten a subpoena for them. But they took the, the higher, more drastic step of getting a court-authorized search warrant. And to do that, you have to go before a court. You have to establish that there is probable cause that a crime occurred and that there will be evidence of that crime located on his phones and his devices. So the fact that the FBI believes that a crime occurred and that evidence of that crime will be on the mayor's devices, I think says a lot about the seriousness and severity of this investigation. They didn't give him notice. They didn't give him an opportunity to turn it in and just hand it over. They showed up and surprised him, which also leads you to believe that they believe that the evidence could be lost or destroyed. It, this is a very escalated step to take for a public official like a mayor of, of New York. Yeah, no question about it. And Shan, how significant is this to you? And what sort of evidence would investigators be looking for on his phones? I mean, it sounds like uh, opening up a Pandora's box. Yeah, I agree with Karen. It is a very escalated step, particularly for a public official, and uh, <clears throat> they'd have to run it up the chain to do that as opposed to asking him nicely for it or issuing a subpoena. The evidence they would look for there would obviously be communication, confirmation of contact uh, with the people perhaps who are going to be accused of making these illegal, illegal donations, but more immediately too, what kind of communications he had with his staff, because from a defense standpoint, what you're trying to do is staunch the wound, tie it off as low as possible on the hierarchy. Prosecution wants to see how high it goes. So of great interest to them would be to see what kind of communications he had with his staff, who was telling him about these donations. Uh, it's a little bit unclear to me from what uh, Paul had learned, whether the approach means they tried to interview Adams or whether they were simply saying, hey, sorry, you know, we have this warrant, we're taking 
your phones. The absence of an interview at the moment <clears throat> might be good news for them. It might be that they're really focusing more on the people who might have made the do donations, or conversely, you know, they just haven't reached the stage where they want to uh, ask him for more in-depth interview. And being a politician, being the mayor, he'll be hard-pressed to say, no, you know, I'm not going to talk to you. Right. And Karen, this is the first direct instance of this investigation into these campaign contributions touching the mayor. The story has been out there regarding people close to the mayor. What does this signal to you? I think this signals the fact that they got approval to get this search warrant and to approach the mayor, surprise him and take his devices right on the spot, right? Leaving yeah. him without these devices. It just, it tells me that, that this has really escalated and that they believe at least that this gets close to the mayor. If not, I mean, I, I hear what, what, what his lawyer, um, Boyd Johnson is saying that, that he's not a subject uh, of this investigation, but I, I think that they think that at least it gets close to him. Yeah, Shan, why didn't they just go to the mayor's office and, you know, reach out to the mayor and say, or his attorney and say, hey, we'd like to see those phones. I mean, I, I mean, as Karen was saying, this is this is a pretty dramatic step. And it suggests that perhaps they didn't think, you know, asking him directly was going to work out as well. Yeah, I don't know if it means they think he wouldn't have turned them over, but I think giving him a heads up in these circumstances, they must believe <clears throat> that there could be some problems with the evidence being preserved. Uh, also, I guess we don't know yet really in the weeds, personal cell phone, does he have a mayoral official cell phone? Are they taking both? Obviously, when he has an official cell phone, people other than himself may have access to it, and that's another possibility for you know tampering or altering the evidence. So they're definitely looking to preserve the status quo, want to make sure that the evidence isn't tampered with, uh, and that could mean that there's some suspicion as to whether the mayor or certainly those close to him uh, would be on the up and up with cooperation. All right, Shan Wu and Karen Friedman, Agnifilo, uh, thank you so much to both of you for your time. We appreciate it. Coming up next, we'll get an update on the looming government shutdown here in Washington. Does House Speaker Mike Johnson have a plan to rally his unruly Republican caucus? around a spending bill. Plus, new developments in the classified documents case against Donald Trump, what a judge's decision means for the timing of the trial. We'll be right back. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Here in Washington, the federal government is once again teetering on the edge of a government shutdown. House Speaker Mike Johnson short on options and running out of time to rally his fraction 
a Republican conference around a plan. Let's get an update now from CNN's Melanie Zanona up on Capitol Hill. Melanie, uh, when will the speaker finally tell us what he plans to do? Well, we could get a window into Speaker Johnson's thinking as soon as tomorrow. I'm told that Speaker Johnson plans to release a bill on Saturday with the hopes of putting it on the floor by Tuesday. And we're also learning that there's going to be a House Republican conference call at 11 a.m. tomorrow to brief members on what that plan is and try to rally everyone around it. But so far, Johnson has been really keeping his cards close to the vest as he weighs this consequential decision. And that is because the House Republican conference has been very divided over what path they should pursue. There are moderates and appropriators who are pushing a more straightforward, clean stopgap spending bill that extends funding until the end of this year or early next year. But then there's conservative hardliners who are pushing this much more complicated idea that would extend funding for government agencies for various lengths of time, essentially teeing up multiple fiscal cliffs. And that option would be dead on arrival in the Senate. So that would risk a government shutdown. That's something that Speaker Johnson absolutely does not want, but at the same time, he does not want to risk infuriating his right flank, especially so early on in his tenure. Now, I will say that conservative hardliners have signaled that they are willing to give Johnson a longer leash than they did his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, who was facing very similar problems from within the divided conference, but no doubt a big moment for Speaker Johnson and one that's going to tell us a lot about how he plans to govern. Jim. All right, Melanie Zanona for us. Thank you very much. Turning now to Donald Trump's legal troubles. The former president's efforts to avoid facing criminal trial before the 2024 election just got a thumbs down by the judge in the classified documents case. CNN's Caitlin Polance has more on that decision. Caitlin, what can you tell us? Jim, it's a lot of drama over a calendar date, but it's a really important calendar date because the question here has always been since Donald Trump was charged in Florida in this documents case, uh, will he go to trial before the election or not? He certainly does not want to, and his lawyers have tried making that case over and over again to the judge. She had originally set the trial date for May of next year. They were in court last week appealing to her, talking about how busy they were, how much work they had to do in this case, and all of the other cases that they're dealing with right now on behalf of the former president, where he's a criminal defendant set to go to multiple trials next year. Uh, and the judge had some sympathy, but said today in her order, May is still the time for this trial. She has given Trump's legal team a little bit more breathing room to do work around this case. She specifically has acknowledged that there's a lot of evidence they need to work through. There's also classified material. All the evidence they look at is called discovery. She wrote in her order today, the quantity of discovery in this case remains exceedingly voluminous, even more so than initially thought. These evolving and unforeseen circumstances require a reevaluation. Defendants need more time to review the discovery in this case. So as of now, Judge Eileen Cannon in federal court in Florida says they are going to get a little bit more time so that they can work through their initial process of preparing for trial. They're going to revisit the trial date in March. But right now, May is the time that Donald Trump is set to go to trial in this. It will be just after he's set to go to trial in that other federal criminal case related to January 6th. But Jim, we're going to be talking about these calendar dates again because uh, Donald Trump does not want to be a criminal defendant before a jury and getting some sort of result in a trial before the presidential election of next year. No, you're absolutely right about that. But Caitlin, is there still a chance the judge could push this case until after the 2024 election? I suppose right up on the verge of the 2024 election. She there's, can do a lot of things. Yeah, there's yeah. always a chance. And in court, 
This is a judge that's been very hard to read in this case. Uh, she's given Donald Trump a lot of runway every time he's been asking for things. Some people today were saying that she split the baby here. Other people I talked to uh, were very positive about this in if they wanted the trial date to move past the election. Others who didn't want that to happen, they thought it's very possible that she does that and it's a shame the way she's setting this up. We just don't know what she's going to do. And trial dates, they move in court. They move the whole way up to the week of trial sometimes. So we'll just have to see how it plays out next year. All right, Caitlin, you will be busy, of course. Uh, Caitlin Polans, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Coming up, officials are racing to find out who's responsible for sending a series of suspicious letters to election workers and public officials across the United States. Law enforcement officials are scrambling as they investigate a series of suspicious letters that were sent to election workers and public officials across the country. Fentanyl was found in at least one of the letters. Brian Todd is monitoring this story for us. Brian, very disturbing. What's the latest? Well, Jim, there are serious concerns tonight over whether there are other letters like these that might be on their way to other election offices. We have new information tonight on the letters that have been sent and how investigators are tracking their origins. Responders in hazmat suits at an election office in Washington state. Offices there and in five other states having to be evacuated. Tonight, the fear is palpable as the FBI and U.S. Postal Inspection Service investigate a series of suspicious letters sent to election workers and other public officials. This is domestic terrorism and it needs to be condemned by anyone that holds elected office and anyone that wants to hold elected office anywhere in America. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger said election offices were targeted in his state, in addition to letters received in California, Nevada, Oregon, Texas, and Washington state. At least one of the letters tested positive for fentanyl, a synthetic opioid drug used for pain, but which has often proven to be deadly. Investigators are treating all these letters as being linked. There have been at least a dozen letters, all sent out at about the same time. Authorities have not yet publicly identified a suspect. What could the motive be? Pure and simple, to intimidate uh, election workers and to frustrate voting in uh, those jurisdictions where the letters have been sent. Also, too, to send a message to other people who are in different jurisdictions that something similar like this may happen to them. One letter released by the FBI reads, End Elections Now. Fulton County, Georgia, a frequent target after the 2020 election of election deniers and conspiracy theorists, has also been targeted with at least one letter. There are some crazy people out there who will go to any extreme to disrupt, interrupt, fair, open, transparent elections in our country, and specifically here in Fulton County. It's my personal belief that this is just probably a forerunner to what we can be prepared for in 2024. Former FBI agent Daniel Brunner spoke about how the 2024 election could be affected by attacks like this. All these mail-in ballots are going to have to be looked at with a little bit more scrutiny, a little bit more testing. Brunner spoke of how the FBI and Postal Service inspectors are likely tracking possible suspects in this case. They're going to work with the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit at Quantico. They're going to look at the way the, the letters were written what type of language was used. For Brad Raffensperger, the use of fentanyl in these attacks doesn't just signify danger, it's personal. We lost our son five and a half years ago due to a fentanyl overdose. We know how deadly this stuff is. 
And from Raffensperger, a disturbing indication of the dangers at play here and exactly what election workers now have to deal with. He says election offices in Georgia will now have to be stocked with Narcan, a, a drug that's used to reverse, reverse opioid overdoses. And election workers will now have to be trained in how to use Narcan. Jim, it's a horrible reflection yeah. when election workers now have to use Narcan in their own offices. They've been dealing with so much in this country since the last uh, presidential election. And, and Brian, the, the wrinkle in this that I find to be very disturbing is the fact that fentanyl right. was found. That, that, is, that seems new. It's new. Yeah. They, they've not seen this before. Of course, they had the anthrax scare in 2001. Right. They had the ricin letters that were sent some years later. They have experience in investigating all this, but fentanyl is kind of a new deal here. And in kind of investigating the story today, we, we've learned that, you know, we've asked questions like, how dangerous is fentanyl to touch? Well, apparently, you, you really can't die from it unless you ingest it and it gets into your bloodstream or into your stomach. But if you touch it, it can still make you somewhat ill. So hmm. you have to be very careful. Um, but again, it's just the, the fact that this you know, person or persons lace these letters with this stuff yeah. is crazy. And it, you know, they, have to, they have to deal with it with Narcan, which actually just got approved by the FDA back in March. It's just so sick that if election workers have to now have Narcan on hand because Crazy. of this kind of situation. All right, Brian Todd, very disturbing. Thank you very much. Coming up, uh, a recording of a hostage's last moments of freedom before Hamas abducted her. We'll go to Israel next as the families of hostages become more desperate by the hour. And an expert negotiator shares his take on the best way forward. That's next. Nearly five weeks after hundreds of people were taken hostage by Hamas, public opinion in Israel is starting to shift. More Israelis than ever want their government to immediately negotiate the hostages' release while fighting Hamas, according to a new survey by the Israeli Democracy Institute. And CNN's Ed Lavendera is in Tel Aviv for us. Ed, uh, what are you hearing from the hostages' families? Well, Jim, as you can imagine, for weeks, the families of these hostages have been watching the Israeli bombardment of Gaza, knowing that their loved ones are inside there. We wanted to know exactly what they were willing to accept in terms of some sort of deal to get their hostages and loved ones back home. I have her also here on my back, my beautiful sister. For more than a month, Hamas has held Yarden Gonin's 23-year-old sister, Romy, hostage. Yarden is sleeping outside Israel's military headquarters and vows to stay here as long as it takes to get her sister home. It's a statement. We're here until they're here. And it's on your hands and the world's hands to bring them back. The families and volunteer supporters of the roughly 240 hostages have mobilized a massive campaign demanding their release. But what price are these families pushing the Israeli government to pay? It's probably going to take some sort of deal to save, okay, to save I, the hostages. Okay. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Yeah. To understand her desperation, Yarden wants the world to hear this terrifying recording of Romy's phone call with their mother from the music festival Hamas fighters ambushed. If it was your sister, do you think there is a price for your sister? My sister doesn't have a price. She needs to be here. None of them have a price. They are innocent civilians. 
Hundreds gathered at this Tel Aviv protest demanding that the International Red Cross ensure medical treatment for the hostages. Some held signs pushing for a trade of humanitarian aid between Gazan civilians and the hostages. But of the nearly dozen families we spoke with, all supported exchanging Palestinian prisoners for the hostages. Act now! Act now! Netta Hyman Mina's 84-year-old mother is a hostage. Netta is fearful her mother won't survive Israel's attacks on Gaza. The Israeli government, uh, uh, their first priority is to destroy the Hamas, and we need uh, the first priority uh, will be the, to bring them back. Ofri Bibas Levy is waiting for news of her brother's entire family, including two young boys. We are willing to do whatever it takes for it. So, so even if it's something difficult like uh, yeah. prisoner exchange? Yeah. It's a difficult situation, um, so there's no easy way. The Israeli government says there will be no ceasefire without the release of hostages. So there's a kind of contradiction here that you want to negotiate with them to free hostages, but your goal is to actually kill them. In 2011, Gershon Baskin negotiated a prisoner exchange with Hamas for Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit. More than 1,000 Palestinian prisoners were released in the deal, including Yahya Sinwar, who the IDF says became one of the masterminds of the October 7th attack. So these are excruciating decisions. There's no easy way out of here. Israel's prison service tells CNN it's holding more than 6,000 Palestinian prisoners. I know what decision I would make, and it's not a good decision, but I would make the all-for-all all decision because I think it's more important to bring those hostages home than it is to free the Palestinian, that keep the Palestinian prisoners in jail. Yarden Gonin says she would trade places with her sister to save her life. But all she can do is remain camped outside, demanding a deal to bring her sister home. And you're going to stay how long? Until they come back. As long as it takes? Yeah. I hope that it will take two days, at least. At most. If it takes months? So I'll be here. So, Jim, the tension around this is only growing by the day. A group of hostage families made a statement today saying that victory is not the assassination of the Hamas masterminds behind this attack. Victory is getting these hostages home. Uh, but that is not clearly, it's not clear to many people whether or not that is the campaign that uh, the Israeli government is is, un, is undertaking right now. And many people question whether or not you can do both, uh, eliminate Hamas militarily and save the hostages' lives. Jim? Yeah, and it's so heartbreaking to look at the faces of those hostages and, and think about what they and their families must be going through. Ed, uh, excellent report, as always, Ed Lavendera. Uh, thank you. We appreciate it. Coming up, more on the breaking news. The federal investigation into New York City Mayor Eric Adams escalating dramatically tonight as the FBI seizes his phones and iPads. Stay with us. You're in the Situation Room. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Happening now, breaking news. The New York City mayor's cell phones seized. The FBI and federal prosecutors ratcheting up a fundraising investigation, bringing it directly to Mayor Eric Adams. 
Also tonight, the skies over Gaza light up again. Israel declaring its war against Hamas is complex as the U.S. Secretary of State is sharpening his criticism of the soaring civilian death toll. And on the 2024 campaign trail, President Biden takes a jab at Donald Trump while Vice President Kamala Harris travels to South Carolina. Her mission to try to rally black voters, as polls suggest, Biden's support from that core constituency may be softening. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. Wolf Blitzer is off today. I'm Jim Acosta, and you're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. A lot of news tonight. Let's get right to the breaking news. Out of New York this hour, the mayor, Democrat Eric Adams, drawn directly into a federal investigation of fundraising with his electronic devices seized by the FBI. CNN senior crime and justice correspondent Shimon Kokifez is on this story for us. Shimon, a pretty dramatic development there in New York. What do you know about this probe and, and exactly what are investigators looking for, do you think? Right, Wolf. Well, Jim, the thing is that what's going on here is that certainly there's an escalation here uh, in this investigation. Uh, the FBI uh, seizing his phones, a tablet uh, is our understanding, an iPad. Uh, this all happening on Monday, and we're learning about this just, you know, today. Uh, this all came after an event, a public event that the mayor had on Monday. Uh, and then the FBI showed up. According to The New York Times, they met him outside this event they approached him. Uh, they approached the security detail, essentially told him to step aside and then served them with search warrants. And in those search warrants uh, contained information that they were looking for relating to his electronic devices. And according to The New York Times, they went inside the SUV, took his phones and then just days later gave them back uh, to him. What we know about this investigation is that this all started last week during a search warrant of a chief fundraiser in Brooklyn. Uh, and according to officials, the FBI conducting an investigation into whether uh, campaign money was funneled through straw donors, Turkish uh, government uh, folks and straw donors. And so that is what sort of started all of this. And then something clearly has happened. Something significant has happened here for the FBI to take this kind of step in this investigation to approach a sitting mayor, the New York City mayor, and to ask for his phones in this way uh, is certainly very, very significant. Now, uh, the mayor uh, and his folks through a lawyer, his lawyer telling us that basically the mayor is cooperating in this investigation and that he's going to continue to cooperate uh, in this investigation. But the question obviously is, if he's cooperating, why did the FBI need to take this step in seizing his phones? And, and Jim, this is something that is certainly very significant. The mayor's folks denying that uh, he's done anything wrong, and they say they're going to continue uh, to cooperate in this investigation. Yeah, some very big questions being raised this evening, Shimon Prokopes. Thank you very much uh, for that. I, I suspect you'll be busy on this for uh, some time. Uh, let's uh, bring in our legal and political experts to discuss. Eli Onig, uh, let me go to you first. Uh, Eli, to Shimon's po point, what he was just saying a few moments ago, uh, what do we know about prosecutors and what they have to establish in order to get a search warrant to go up to the mayor and ask for his devices? Uh, I mean, right on the spot. Uh, that's, that's wild. Yeah, Jim. So in order to get a search warrant, prosecutors have to establish probable cause that a federal crime was committed 
and that they will find evidence of that crime on whatever devices, in this case, the phones they're seizing. So in order to do that as a prosecutor, you have to actually write out a detailed affidavit setting forth your probable cause. You have to then bring it across the street to the judge. The judge then has to review it and agree that you've shown probable cause. It's important to know probable cause is a substantial legal standard, but it's also far below proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which you ultimately need to get a conviction. So it's a big step here. I assure you prosecutors would not serve a search warrant on the sitting mayor of New York City unless they felt they had very good reason. But that's what we know about what they've had to do legally to get to this point. Hey, yeah, Joe Jackson, what type of evidence could investigators be looking for on these devices? Yes, yeah, so they'll look at, through a lot of evidence. I would just hasten to add in saying that, though, that here's the issue. Not every obvious indictment, not excuse me, not every search warrant leads to an arrest. Not every arrest leads to an indictment. Not every, every indictment leads to a prosecution and conviction. And so we should be measured in speaking about it. With respect to what they're looking at, they're looking at evidence to which he, Jim, might have been involved in any criminality, right? When you have a search warrant that's conducted, you pull out and you glean information with respect to a crime. Were there campaign finance violations? Was there any involvement with the Turkish government? Were there straw buyers? It is either people who didn't exist or who did exist, but were not making these donations. To what extent was he directing any of that? Was there a conspiracy? Were any members of his campaign involved and did it reach his knowledge? So there's a lot of information to be gleaned from that. But again, I would just take a measured approach. The federal government, as Ellie will tell you, they investigate, 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 and until they get the actual information to move forward, they will not. But we shouldn't at all suggest, not that anyone is, that the mayor is guilty of anything until or unless we know that that really develops into something of significance, which could lead to a criminal charge and an arrest and an indictment. No, that's an excellent point. Uh, let's be cautious about this. No question about it. Uh, John Avalon, uh, this is not the first time, though, that Adams and his associates have faced legal scrutiny. How do you see this impacting his standing in the city? Look, there's been a lot of smoke around Mayor Adams, um, you know, shady associates, uh, allegations of individuals uh, behaving in, in uh, sort of you know, dodgy ways. But it's never reached the mayor directly himself, a former uh, New York City Police Department captain. Uh, and you got to understand the mayor of New York travels around with an intense security detail for the FBI to execute a search warrant um, against a mayor. It's separating him from his detail and taking his personal phones. That's, you know, that that indicates that what they are investigating, this, you know, alleged straw donor scheme involving uh, individuals from Turkey impacts the mayor directly and maybe the tip of a larger iceberg. Maybe. I want to stress that. But it's extraordinary for it to go direct to level the mayor. Mayor Adams has had a hard time fulfilling some campaign promises. A lot of the trends are moving in the right direction, succeeding an unpopular mayor. But this is devastating to the authority of a mayor. It's been almost 100 years since we've had a mayor removed, so people shouldn't jump to that scenario. Uh, but a very bad day for City Hall, where, where I once worked, almost unimaginable. Yeah, I mean, there's just no question about it. There's, there's now a cloud hanging over the mayor, and, and that's going to be there until we know what is going on here. And Ellie, what is the relevance of the Southern District of New York, your former office, being involved in this search? That is also a big deal. Yeah, Jim. So first of all, that tells us this is a federal investigation. The Southern District of New York, of course, is a federal prosecutor's office, part of the United States Department of Justice. I also can tell you for sure, if you look at the Justice Department's internal procedures, 
approval for this search warrant would have had to go down to the DOJ bosses in DC for a search warrant of this magnitude against a known public figure. The other thing to keep in mind is the Southern District of New York has a long history of bringing public corruption investigations and in some cases prosecutions of high-ranking politicians of both parties, including in the last several years, the leading Democrat and Republican in the New York State Assembly and Senate. Uh, Joe makes a very good point, though. There is a history of the SDNY going after, prosecuting, and convicting high-ranking public officials, but there's also a history of investigations swirling around high-ranking public officials that did not result in criminal charges. So that's what we do know, but there's a lot we still have to wait and see. And Joey, uh, based on what we know so far, what federal crimes could investigators be looking at, do you think? Yeah, I, I think they're honing in on any relations to Turkey and any relation that the mayor may have had. Apparently, when he was Brooklyn Borough President, he made a visit there. Uh, so that doesn't mean anything of, in, of itself. But I think they're investigating whether there's any connection and whether that would result in any campaign finance violation. And to the extent that it did, I think that they would pursue that and they would pursue whether he had knowledge of it, whether he directed it, whether it was his campaign staff, whether he introduced anyone. Again, all speculative because we don't know. But in reading the tea leaves with regard to what they're concerned about, that is the authorities, Jim, it looks like that is what they're investigating. That's the basis of it. And we should last point know that because they investigated his chief uh, fundraiser and, of course, went to her home and executed a search warrant, what information was gleaned there? Was there any connection to the mayor from that information or did they simply need more? So what's the nexus between that? No investigation is done in isolation. You connect the dots and the pieces. And if they lead to the mayor, the chips will fall as they may. No indication that they do. But certainly the search warrant is telling if it was ultimately approved to go to him that, you know, something is of concern that authorities believe is worthy enough to investigate further. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. A lot of news tonight. Got to get going. But Ellie Honig, Joey Jackson, John Avalon, thanks to all of you. We really appreciate it. Just ahead, uh, what the new bombardment of Gaza could signal about Israel's next military move. We're also learning more about negotiations aimed at freeing hostages held by Hamas. Plus, the judge in Donald Trump's classified documents trial nixes his request for a delay, at least for now. Tonight, CNN's crew on the ground in Israel has witnessed an intense new bombardment of Gaza. Our Nick Robertson is on the scene reporting from Starat, not far from Gaza. Nick, uh, what are you seeing and hearing tonight? Looks like a lot of activity. Yeah, it was a lot of activity earlier. I was still hearing a lot of detonations. There was another one just now coming from the Jabalia refugee camp area. That's right in the northern end of the Gaza Strip. And what we were witnessing were uh, flares being uh, put in the sky. They kind of like hang there over the battlefield. Uh, there was like a smoke screen on the ground. And when you see that, you know the troops uh, are, are going in for, for a battle. They're, they're illuminating the ground. They got a smoke screen. So the Hamas can't see them. And we saw a lot of rockets coming down on that position as well. Rockets and maybe uh, heavy machine gun fire from an Apache helicopter. But a lot of fire was put into that area, a lot of explosions. And this is what the IDF says they're doing. They're going into areas, isolating pockets of Hamas and then concentrating firepower on them. But what is fascinating about seeing this tonight, two weeks now since the ground incursion began, the Jabalia refugee camp is only a few miles 
miles into northern Gaza. Yet the troops are still having a big battle flushing out Hamas there. The whole of the Gaza Strip's 26 miles long. So that gives you an idea. If they're a couple of miles in, two weeks, still having big fights, gives you an idea of just how long it's going to take the IDF to get right to the south of Gaza, which is what they say they want to do. And that gets you to the underlying tensions between the White House and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu right now. Um, exactly. And Nick, how, uh, how are Palestinians being impacted in Gaza by all of this? Uh, I, I would have to think uh, just a heavy toll. Yeah, the IDF is creating... Yeah, the, the IDF's creating the humanitarian corridors so people can get from the north to the south. Tens of thousands went today, civilians. Um, but the situation for them isn't getting any better. The International Committee for the Red Cross said the uh, healthcare system in, uh, in, in Gaza is at a point of no return. There are tanks parked outside some of hospitals. We're hearing reports that hospitals are evacuating docu doctors and patients. The Hamas-run health authority in Gaza says that 193 health workers killed, 60 ambulances damaged, 21 out of 35 hospitals out of commission, 53 out of 72 two healthcare centers are, are out of commission as well. So what's the picture? The picture is the IDF can go after Hamas, but the humanitarian situation is getting worse. Plus all those folks now in the south of Gaza, you're doubling the density of the civilian population. But the IDF is still going to continue to move into the south where you now have more people. And the issue is, again, how do you avoid civilian casualties? Day after day after day, civilian casualties. We've seen it again today, Jim. All right, Nick Robertson on the scene for us. Uh, Nick, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Right now, we're getting new information about efforts to free dozens of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza, including Americans. CNN's MJ Lee is at the White House with new information. And MJ, uh, what are you learning about a potential deal under discussion? And what would it yeah. look like? Jim, I am told by a senior U.S. official that the parties involved in the ongoing negotiations to try to secure the release of these hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza, that they are looking towards and working towards a deal that would entail a multiple sustained days-long pause in fighting in exchange for a large group of these hostages being freed, and that if a deal were struck, uh, the hostages would leave Gaza in stages over the course of multiple days and that the first priority would be given to the most vulnerable populations, including, of course, children and women. But just in a sign of how incredibly delicate and challenging these negotiations are, the senior U.S. official uh, telling me that a deal has been close before and that there's no certainty at all that a deal can ultimately be struck. I'm also told that there are many, many details that still need to be worked out and that if a deal were to be struck, it would still be days before that that came to fruition. Uh, I'm also told that obviously we have seen uh, Israel and as Nick was just reporting uh, scenes of unrelenting uh, Gaza offensive from the Israelis and Israeli officials uh, have sort of made it clear that they see an aggressive uh, offensive in Gaza as being key to getting these hostages out. Uh, CNN of course has also previously reported on the idea of the exchange of hostages in Gaza uh, for Palestinian prisoners that are being held 
by uh, by the Israelis being a central component of these negotiations. Now, all of this comes as the Biden administration continues to uh, say that they are alarmed about the Palestinian death toll and the humanitarian toll that this conflict is causing. Uh, we saw just today Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, saying in the bluntest terms that we have heard yet, uh, far too many Palestinians have been killed in this conflict. Jim. All right, MJ Lee with some new reporting for us at the White House. MJ, thank you very much. As Secretary of State Blinken sharpens his criticism of civilian deaths in Gaza, Israel's military's uh, rules of engagement are under severe scrutiny, as CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports. The lifeless body in Mohammed al-Alul's arms is his child, killed in an Israeli airstrike on the al-Marazi refugee camp. But it takes three more small bodies to tell the story of this man's loss. Four of his five children were among the 47 people killed in that same strike. A spokesman for the Israeli military would only say it struck military targets embedded in the residential neighborhood. This is a lie, Al-Alul, a photojournalist, tells me. The Israeli army targets the safe civilians in their houses, targets children, women, evacuees. Where are the resistance fighters they are targeting? At least 11,000 Palestinians have been killed in 34 days of war in Gaza. More than 4,500 are children, by definition civilians. Altogether, women, children and the elderly account for nearly three-quarters of the dead, according to the Hamas-run Palestinian Ministry of Health. The staggering death toll catapulting international outcry and tepid American pressure to new levels. Far too many Palestinians have been killed. Far too many have suffered uh, these past weeks. Israel says it abides by international law and aims to minimize civilian casualties, pointing to warnings to civilians to flee south. But I can tell you one thing. We're going out of our way to prevent civilian casualties. Israeli officials instead blame Hamas for using civilians as human shields. This question should be placed on Hamas. And the more it's placed on Israel, the more you're going to see this repeated again and again and again. We never know International law experts agree that Hamas is committing war crimes. It is unlawful under the laws of war to put civilians into harm's way. But even if Hamas are doing that, that does not remove Israel's obligations at all times to minimize the impact on civilians. Human Rights Watch hasn't formally accused Israel of war crimes in any individual strike, but they are raising serious concerns. The totality of civilian loss, including civilian destruction, raises a lot of very serious concerns about what Israel has done, whether the laws of war have been respected, and if they've been deliberate or reckless attacks that violate the laws of war, that that amounts to war crimes. The, question of like whether the Israeli human rights group at Selem is more blunt. Israel has committed war crimes. Israel has failed to provide us with proof in previous time, in previous rounds of war in Gaza, that the military advantage uh, that it's going to get by striking those uh, residential homes is going to outweigh the collateral damage. The Israeli military declined to make one of its commanders or lawyers available to answer these questions on camera. A senior IDF official insisted its strikes are proportionate. 
Those include strikes on Jabalia, which leveled entire buildings and killed at least 100 people in back-to-back -back strikes, according to doctors at the nearest hospital. The target, a senior Hamas commander, multiple Hamas militants, and an underground command center, according to the IDF. But you know that there are a lot of refugees, a lot of innocent civilians, men, women and children in that refugee camp as well, right? This is the tragedy of War Wolf. I mean, we, as you know, we've been saying for days, move south. Six days after his children were killed, Mohammed Alalul is back at work, but he won't ever feel the tug of his son Kinan before he walks out the door. Baba, stay at home so we see you, Kinan told his father the day of the airstrike. Please stay, Baba. Don't go. And that was CNN's Jeremy Diamond reporting from Israel for us. Uh, coming up, President Biden deploys Vice President Kamala Harris to South Carolina as he tries to rebuild the coalition that sent him to the White House. What it says about his 2024 presidential campaign, that's next. As President Biden tries to shore up the shaky coalition behind his 2020 election victory, he's deploying Vice President Kamala Harris to South Carolina to rally African-American voters. And CNN's Eva McKend has the latest. Vice President Kamala Harris on the trail in South Carolina. Officially presented with our papers. Filing paperwork for the Biden-Harris team to appear on the state's Democratic primary ballot. It was South Carolina that created the path to the White House for Joe Biden and me. In 2020, Biden's decisive South Carolina primary victory helped propel him to the party's nomination. I'm here to say thank you. I am here to say, let's do it again. Harris also taking a moment to celebrate big Democratic election wins this week. We are here with the wind in our back because did anyone notice what happened on Tuesday? President Biden also touted those wins at a Chicago fundraiser Thursday, blaming Donald Trump for the Republican losses, saying, we haven't stopped winning and he hasn't stopped losing. The truth is, this guy can't get tired of losing. Tuesday's election results in Ohio, Kentucky and Virginia signaled abortion rights remain a galvanizing issue for Democrats, a point Biden emphasized during the fundraiser, saying... They practically dared the women of America, while adding Trump is the only reason there are abortion bans in America. Those comments coming amid a series of polls showing signs of cracks in Biden's coalition. Allies acknowledge there is still work to do. There are some people that are not in sync uh, with the campaign. And what we've got to do is make sure that people understand uh, what we've done and why we did not do more. Also complicating matters? The political system is broken. The field of third-party candidates growing, with Jill Stein announcing her bid for the Green Party nomination, joining Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Cornell West running as independents. What I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle. And West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin stoking speculation about a White House bid after announcing he won't seek re-election, a challenge to Democratic hopes of maintaining control of the Senate.
And Biden facing another potential threat. No labels. They're a group that brands themselves as a voice for America's common sense majority. Well, they say they're still mulling over a so-called alternative unity presidential ticket. That group will hold media briefings next week. Jim. All right, Eva McKen, thank you so much for that report. We appreciate it. Let's get more from our political experts, Gloria Borger. Uh, let me go to you first. President Biden going right after Donald Trump and these remarks at that fundraiser. What do you think of that? Well, I think that Biden is looking at the polls and he's realizing that he can't just stay in the Rose Garden and pay no attention to Donald Trump. And so I think we're seeing gradually a bit of a shift in in White House strategy. I'm not saying that it's full blown, but I think that um, you're going to see Biden take the gloves off, maybe one finger at a time here. But I think that's what we saw. And Kate, what did you make of uh, Jim Clyburn, who is an ally of the president, saying that there are some voters out there who are not in sync with the president? Well, he's being honest. I mean, we've certainly seen a number of polls that show that they're the level of support amongst the core coalition of voters who uh, got uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris elected in 2020 uh, isn't as strong right at this moment. Uh, so I think what he's saying uh, is he's just he's calling it like it is. And he's essentially saying to people who uh, would look at a Donald Trump presidency and say, I don't want that again. Well, then you got to turn out and vote. You got to come out. And I think that the Biden campaign has a year to make the case for the things that they've done. They've, I would certainly argue that they've made uh, enormous strides in making people's lives better. Uh, and they've got a year to make that case and to make it also by drawing the strong contrast, which you heard President Biden do today uh, with Donald Trump. The more this race is about the contrast between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Donald Trump, the better that is for Biden and Harris. And Scott Jennings, Trump has tried to uh, moderate his position on abortion more so than his 2024 GOP rivals. But we're seeing the Biden uh, folks, the president himself, reminding people Trump appointed the justices who overturned Roe. How do you see this playing out? Well, I think Trump perceives that he's going to have to moderate uh, because of what we're seeing happen in some of these elections. But that, of course, is complicated by his own record. Uh, and I'm sure the Democrats are, are happy to point this out. I mean, the Democrats would rather have a referendum on this than a referendum on Joe Biden's performance on the economy. That's why his approval rating is low. That's why he's losing in the swing states right now to Donald Trump. And so changing the subject is the goal, I would think, of the White House. And you're seeing that out of them. I just am not sure you're going to be able to do it because of the absolute anger uh, and anxiety over the economy that exists uh, uh, broadly. And also the anxiety and concern about whether Joe Biden has the mental acuity to serve a second term in some swing state polls that have come out You've seen people, Democrats, Republicans, independents all say, we're just not sure he's up to it. And that's not really a policy problem that can be fixed. And of course, there have been questions about that for Donald Trump as well. Um, Gloria, let me ask you this. Speaking of anger and anxiety, the federal government is set to shut down one week from today. Uh, Mike Johnson is facing his first big test as the Speaker of the House. But we haven't seen any kind of a plan to keep the government going. What do you think? Well, I think it's a mess. And um, I think there's a new speaker, but there's not a new House Republican Party. And it's the same old questions that Kevin McCarthy had to deal with, which is how do you placate the moderates and placate the right wing of the party? And how do you get anything passed that's going to go anywhere in the Senate? So same old problems. And I think he's compounding his problem by kind of uh, keeping uh, his plans uh, secret. Now, I know that Republicans are supposed to talk tomorrow, but it's not it's never a good idea to sort of spring something on a caucus 
uh, this late in the game, and he has to put something on the record so they can vote on it uh, by early next week. So I think the honeymoon may be over, and he's probably beginning to realize what Kevin McCarthy was going through. Yeah, and Kate, I mean, what do you think the, the view is over at the White House? Uh, are they licking their chops over there that the uh, new House Speaker may let the government shut down? Uh, well, no, because I think they're frustrated that they don't have a functioning uh, partner in government. I mean, they don't want to see the government shut down either. Now, look, from a political perspective, is this something that the Republicans are going to have to own? Yes, of course it is. I mean, we're seeing, as Gloria was saying, you're seeing a speaker who hasn't even been able to make public the plan that he intends to uh, to put forward to try to get uh, his caucus to yes in order to get a bill that could hypothetically pass the Senate. I mean, they are uh, in the tall grass. They are out in the weeds. So politically, uh, this is not good for the Republican Party. Uh, but for the from the White House's perspective, you know, they want a functioning governing partner. They want to be able to get uh, critical aid to Israel, critical aid to Ukraine uh, and a bill that funds the government that ensures that, you know, for example, our military yeah. who are currently serving get paid. So uh, so they're definitely uh, they're frustrated uh, and they're hoping that uh, Republicans are going to be able to uh, get their act together, put forward a bill uh, and then uh, try to move this process along. Scott. Well, they're a little bit of a mess right now, but what they need to do is buy themselves some time and get a CR probably until January. I do think getting aid to Israel is vital. And I, if I were in Johnson's position, I might dare the Democrats and the White House uh, to uh, turn away from or veto uh, even a bill that uh, funded the government and provided aid to Israel. That would put them in a little, little bit of a political box. I don't know if the Democrats want to go down that road or not, although half their party probably does. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, Johnson's got this plan. Maybe he'll unfurl it this weekend. And uh, as Gloria said, early next week, uh, we'll head to the floor for more uh, fun and games from the House Republicans. All right. Let's let's Can't hope wait. not too many fun and games. Uh, we've done this way too many times. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, thank you very much. No more government shutdowns, please. Yeah. All right. Just ahead, there's a new development in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case against Donald Trump. We'll tell you what the judge's ruling means for the calendar. Tonight, a new blow to Donald Trump's efforts to avoid facing criminal trial until after the 2024 election. The judge in the classified documents case making a key scheduling decision today. Let's bring in CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider. Uh, Jessica, tell us about this ruling from Judge Cannon. Well, Jim, so the trial against Trump in Florida, it is still on track to start in May, at least right now. So we saw earlier this month Trump's attorneys pressing to get the trial pushed until after the 2024 election. But in the order today, Judge Eileen Cannon said that she is going to keep the May trial date, but she could reconsider that May trial date during arguments in the case that are scheduled for March 1st. Now, what Judge Cannon did give Trump's team is a longer window on a number of upcoming deadlines in this case, in large part because she said of the volume of evidence that Trump's legal team needs to review here. That includes thousands of pages of classified documents that need to be reviewed in a specialized facility. And also because Judge Cannon really acknowledged here that Trump's legal team, they are juggling a number of different legal cases. They've got the case in Florida, also the election subversion indictment right here in Washington. That trial date is currently set for March. And then of course the New York DA case against Trump for hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels. That trial also currently scheduled to start in March. So in the order today, Judge Cannon putting it this way saying, 
The schedules as they currently stand overlap substantially with the deadlines in this case, presenting additional challenges to ensuring defendant Trump has adequate time to prepare for trial and to assist in his defense. So Jim, Judge Cannon here, she's leaving the door open to maybe moving the, the start of the trial date in May. Um, it's an argument that Trump's team will be able to make again at a hearing March 1st. And Trump's spokesperson today saying that his legal team, in fact, does look forward to bringing up once again, possibly moving the trial date when that next hearing in March happens, Jim. So we'll yeah, see. They would certainly like to see that happen after the election next year. Jessica Schneider, thank you very much. Let's dig a little deeper now into the judge's decision with David Weinstein, a former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Florida. Uh, David, I, I want to get your read on this judge's ruling. Uh, how likely do you think it is uh, that this trial date holds for next May? It sounds like from what Jessica Schneider was saying a few moments ago, uh, she is leaving the door open. She's left it wide open, Jim. I think a lot of it's going to depend on what happens in the case in D.C. and then the other case in New York and where those trial getting settings get pushed. She's given them an opportunity. It's not an outright denial. She very much said without prejudice. So they need to do the work they, they've been assigned to do between now and that March 1st hearing. And then they'll come back to Judge Cannon and say, well, we did the work, Judge, and we're still not ready. And we have many other conflicts, and you need to move this case again. And at that point, she'll have to decide, is it going to stay in May or is it going to get pushed farther into 2024? And, and David, this case has more than a million pages of discovery. 5,000 of them are classified documents. How does handling this much sensitive information impact this pretrial timeline? Well, she's given them deadlines to look at this information. She's given the government deadlines to tell her what should be kept out, what should be kept in, what should be disclosed. You know, one of the defendants, they don't want them to see any of these classified documents. I think, Jim, the thing that's getting lost on all of this is it's not so much what's in the documents. It's the fact that they were classified and that they were taken from a place where they should have been and put somewhere where they shouldn't have been. That's what the crux is. The defense is entitled to look at what's in those documents and raise whatever issues there are with regard to the classification. But that's not really the crux of the issue. The issue is, were they somewhere that they shouldn't have been? And you spent years at the Southern District of Florida as we learn more about how this trial is shaping up, uh, including our reporting that the special counsel could call a Mar-a-Lago maid, plumber, and chauffeur to testify. Uh, how are you thinking about what will be this unprecedented trial? How do you think it's going to play out? Well, I think it's going to be interesting to see if the courthouse in Fort Pierce is going to be able to handle not just the trial itself, but the influx of media and everyone around the world who wants to follow this trial. The case was filed in that part of the district. That's where the case should be tried. But can that courthouse handle this? There have been a number of other cases in our district where there have been as much complications and complicated facts and secret documents. And those have all been handled fine, but those have primarily been either in Miami or in Fort Lauderdale. So the interesting question to see is how can Fort Pierce handle this case? All right. Uh, it's going to be a, a heavy uh, load, I think. Uh, David Weinstein, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Uh, coming up, uh, as anti-Semitic incidents at U.S. schools and synagogues rise following Hamas's horrific attack on Israel last month, CNN investigates if and how this alarming trend can be stopped. Stick around for a preview of CNN's The Whole Story. 
On Sunday night, CNN's Dana Bash investigates why the Jewish community faces the highest threat in America. On the whole story with Anderson Cooper, here's a preview. Since the attack on Israel, October 7th, how has your role become more vital? In the wake of the attack, we began to see first a, a surge and then a spike, then an explosion and now a tsunami of anti-Semitism worldwide. In Paris, in London, in Germany. In Australia, it was gas the Jews, uh, get rid of the Jews, let's have a Jew-free zone. It's not about being pro-Hamas or, an or anti-Israel. It's about anti-Semitism. Lipstadt was appointed ambassador because she is one of the world's foremost academic experts on anti-Semitism. You know how when a, the yellow light is flashing, anti-Semitism is like that amber light. And what it's signaling is that anti-Semitism is coming and it's a threat to democracy. And CNN's Dana Bash is with us now with uh, just a remarkable and disturbing uh, whole story. Uh, Dana, what are you hearing about the level of fear and concern right now in the Jewish community since October 7th? I mean, I, you know, if it's one to 10, it's at a 25. It's, it's just something that, frankly, I never thought that I would see uh, in my lifetime in the United States of America. And uh, it is being felt really, uh, not only across the country, Jim, but across the world. And I thought what Deborah Lipstadt, who, by the way, she is the uh, US ambassador, and her focus is on anti-Semitism globally. And the fact that that even exists, and of course existed before October 7th, is quite telling. But she's also an academic expert, maybe the more, most foremost expert on Holocaust studies and on anti-Semitism. Uh, and what she said is that what anti-Semitism is, and we've seen this for millennia now, uh, as it gets worse and worse, it's kind of a canary in a coal mine for democracies that are having some serious trouble. And that's why this is not just a problem for the Jewish community, which it is, but it's a problem, if you look at it with the historical lens, for democratic societies and governments. Yeah, and what's awful about all this is that you would, you would think that after October 7th, there would be more sympathy for the Jewish community around the world. The opposite has happened, and we're seeing more and more uh, rage and hostility, and it's just, uh, it's mind-boggling. You know, I, I act, that's the exact question that I asked to several people who I talked to in this hour, that when we generally see uh, a person or a group that is the victim of terrorism in general, but something like this, which is so brutal, so barbaric, the world does tend to rally around that person or group. And in this case, just the opposite happened. And it, that started, Jim, before Israel retaliated against uh, Hamas in Gaza. It happened almost immediately. And part of the reason is because anti-Semitism was already growing. I did, first did an hour about this in 2022 because of the rise. And what happens is when the latent anti-Semitism is there, they see an opportunity, maybe even a roadmap for other anger and other threats. And a lot of the online threats that are becoming more and more um, vocal and apparent are threats that mimic 
what these terrorists did to innocent civilians. Mm. And it's, it's really just atrocious. The question is, how do we deal with it? Education, 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 but also condemning it and calling it out on the government level, on the university level, on the corporate level. Absolutely. It's chilling, but also you make the exact right point, which is let's talk about it. Let's get it out in the open. Let's make sure we're doing things like yeah. what you're doing with the special. Dana, thank you Thanks, very Jim. much. Uh, be sure to tune in an all-new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. One whole hour, one whole story airs. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific only on CNN. Coming up, Wolf Blitzer sits down with an Israeli family forever changed on October 7th. Their 21-year-old son attended the Nova Music Festival and his family believes he's one of the hundreds held hostage by Hamas. We'll bring you that story next. Finally, our Wolf Blitzer spoke with one family praying for the safe return of a young man kidnapped by Hamas. Amen. Amen. This is a traditional Shabbat meal for the Mayer family. But in the months since the Hamas terror attacks, an empty chair looms over the gathering. 21-year-old Almog Mayer should be sitting at the head of the table. Very happy guy, smart, with lots of friends. But on the morning of October 7th, he was at the Nova Music Festival in the Israeli desert near the Gaza border. He called me, uh, he woke me up and said to me, Mom, there are rockets all over and shooting. I don't know what happened, what is going on. Uh, I'm hiding. I'll call you every half an hour. Mom, I love you. Eventually, the mayor family found out Almog and his four friends tried to escape the terrorists by driving away. They started to drive, but the shooting of the Hamas stopped them, and they had to leave the car. His uncle says Almog is the only one of his four friends who survived. Since that last phone call, the family has not heard from him, but they've seen Hamas video of him being held in Gaza. In a video clip, we recognize uh, Almog. He was lying on the floor, and Almog uh, covered his uh, face with his hands. He was looking frightened. Now the family focuses on getting Almog and the other hostages home. Everything changed. No sleeping, no eating, all the time thinking about him. That's now my life. Wolf Blitzer, CNN, Tel Aviv, Israel. And Aaron Burnett out front starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.